Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Uh, last week, we began introducing this new section as uh, I noted that uh, we are uh, in verses 11 and 12, you have what is uh, referred to as a hinge verse. It's a it's a passage that is kind of bringing uh, to conclusion things that were said before while at the same time introducing uh, the new direction of where Peter is headed. Um, and as I, I noted last week, what Peter is about to do is get very practical, very practical with all that he has said about this new identity that we have in Jesus Christ what does it look like to live as Christ's temple presence in a secular world, in a world that does not appreciate Jesus or his church? How do we live? What, what, what does it look like for us to be devoted to our king in the midst of difficult circumstances? Let's begin reading in verse 11 this morning. The title of the sermon this morning is Subjection to Earthly Authority Through Allegiance to Our Heavenly King. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject to the Lord, uh, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for the words that you have provided to us through your apostle, Peter. Words that this morning are very helpful and needful, which is why you have provided them, and yet words that do not come easy to us. And so I pray this morning that you would help us to set aside, as much as we are able, all of the different arguments against the text that will be running through our heads and hearts as we listen to your word this morning. Help us to humbly receive what you have given to us this morning. And use this, Lord to encourage our trust in our king. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. 
Well, years ago, there were two elderly, very excited Southern women that were sitting on the front. Well, not the front row. It was a Baptist church. So the second row in their church. And as this service was going on, the pastor started getting fiery. He was getting pretty amped about what the text was preaching against. And, and so he started to condemn the sin of stealing. And at the point in which he condemned this sin, these two ladies cried out at the tops of their lungs, Amen, brother. I told you it was a Baptist church. When the preacher condemned the sin of lust, they yelled out again, Preach it, reverend. When the preacher condemned the sin of lying, they jumped to their feet. Now it's gone from Baptist to charismatic. Right on, brother. Tell it like it is. Amen. But when the preacher condemned the sin of gossip, the two ladies got rather quiet. And one of the ladies turned to the other and said, well, now he's just gone from preaching to meddling. <laughs> now, look. There are about 10,000 different versions of this joke. And every seminary student has heard every one of them. <laughs> this is one of those things that, especially in the practical classes that, that you have in seminary that, uh, that typically are being taught by men who were pastors before becoming seminary professors, will tell you that they have heard uh, or experience themselves personally some version of this joke. And it, the reason that everyone knows this joke is because it's not a joke. It's something that goes on. And I can tell you that I personally have never heard someone tell me, well, you went from preaching to meddling, but I can tell you some of the nasty things that I have heard. When you make the all the audacious, when you take the audacious position of not preaching against the sin that is out there, but calling people to look at the sin that is potentially within here. One of the churches that I preached, uh, that I pastored before, had a pastor that for 17 years railed against the sin that was out there. Whether the sin was in culture, whether the sin was in politics, whether the sin was in the other churches, whether the sin was in those, those nasty broad evangelicals, or whether the sin was in the other PCA churches in that presbytery. Because this congregation had become the only faithful congregation in that area and for 17 years they heard the sin out there condemned over and over and over and over and what they did not hear was the importance of realizing what Jesus Christ has said and that is that sin is not what comes into us from the outside but it's what comes out of our hearts. Later on in this letter, Peter is going to say very explicitly, judgment begins with the house of God. We have to begin with ourselves. 
Now, why am I saying all this? Because it, just in case you hadn't already experienced it, you will probably experience this morning that Peter is going from preaching to meddling. He is preaching to us and encouraging us with words from Scripture that have the authority of the Holy Spirit behind them that are going to encourage us to do things as American Christians that do not come naturally to us. In fact, quite often will cause us to chafe against what is said. Because guess what? This is an easy sermon when it comes to actually unfolding the content of the text. And what is that content? Be subject. Be subject. Now, this is not one of those tricky words that I have to then go into some kind of word study from the Greek to help us really put this into context so that we can embrace what you know, is actually being said and not get caught up what appears to be said. No, what appears to be said is what is said. Be subject. Submit. Obey. Specifically here, he says, be subject to every human institution. Now, the way that that is stated is um, a pretty good translation of what is there. And what specifically seems to be in focus here is that there are these different spheres of authority that exist within society. We know, for example, the family. We know, for example, government or the state. We know, for example, the church, that these are authorities that the Lord has put within the lives of people, um, or, or the lives of his people. And what Peter, the, the, those to whom Peter is addressing, are people who live in a day and in a time when everything within the society in which they live, whether it's their co-workers, whether it's extended family, whether it is... Um, the government, whether that government, you're talking about the Roman Empire at this, at this point, or if you're talking about the rule of the local governors that rule under the authority of the empire, whichever um, human authority that you are talking about here, for this people, it is an authority that is arrayed against them. Now, as I said last time, we are not talking about official state-sponsored persecution. That is not going on yet, but it's coming. What is going on at this time is societal pressure. The Christians are persona non grata. People don't appreciate them. They don't uh, agree with them, and the things that the Christians believe are in direct opposition to all of the cultural and religious and governing ideas that the people with whom they live have. It can be very easy to want to live the Christian life in the circumstances that we would like to have. But how do you live the Christian life 
when the, when the circumstances are not what you would like to have? How do you live a devoted life to Jesus Christ when it's not popular, when it's not easy, when everything that you face during the day is trying to encourage you to do the opposite? How do we live devoted lives to Jesus Christ which means being subject to human authority. I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me that have had my feet up to my ankles stepped on as I've been working through 1 Peter. But there is a lot here that goes against my natural inclinations, let alone my desires, for the world that I wish existed so that I could live the Christian life that I'd like to live. Peter is warning us that there are passions that wage war against us and that these passions are earthly. Some of the passions are sinful, but not all of them are sinful. Some of them are just earthly. And those earthly passions can be raised to the level of sinful passions when we engage them in the wrong way, to the wrong degree, for the wrong reasons. Within this specific context, and I was hoping to cover some of this last Sunday night, but because of the technology we didn't get to, but Lord willing, I'll get to tonight. There is a subtle polemic that Peter is unfolding here in chapter 2. It is a subtle polemic in which the words that he has used to describe us as God's temple presence within this world and contrasting that to the temple presence that is being built by the counterfeit kingdom, there are two specific places where Peter himself and Jesus Christ, I noted before, used that same language that Jesus was the foundation stone that the builders were rejecting. Temple language. Jesus used it to refer to the Pharisees. Peter used it to refer, well, to the Pharisees and to all the spiritual leaders in Israel. Peter used it the same way. And Peter used it in Acts chapter 3 which is where we hear Peter say to the religious authorities who have just told him and have told John to stop preaching Christ. And he says, no, we're going to preach Christ. There is no other name by which sinners can be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. We are going to preach Jesus Christ. And then he quotes that same temple picture of builders rejecting the true cornerstone. The imagery that is used in the Gospels by Jesus, that is used by Peter in Acts chapter 3, is this. The spiritual authorities of Israel in the time of Jesus, in the time of the apostles, they had chosen the earthly glory and power and influence of Herod's temple rather than embracing the true temple 
that God was providing in Jesus Christ. When the nation of Judah, the southern two tribes, when they were captured by Babylon, when they were taken out into exile to to Babylon because they had broken the covenant, the temple was destroyed. And not only was the temple destroyed, the Ark of the Covenant was taken away. The table, the golden table for, for, the, for burning uh, the incense was taken away. The table for the showbread was taken away. The menorah was taken away. Everything that existed within the temple, not only did, were the walls knocked down, but all of the stuff that was, that was there to reveal God's glory, to reveal God's presence, it was removed. And when the people came back from exile, and, and as, as you can read in Haggai, as the temple was rebuilt, what do you see? The older people who had seen Solomon's temple, they weep. Why? Because there is no glory like there had been with Solomon's temple. The question is, what was it that defined the glory of Solomon's temple? Was it all the gold? Was it all the precious gems? Was it all the outward displays of wealth? Was it the fact that everyone in the ancient Near East talked about how awesome the temple was in terms of its presence? Is that what made Solomon's temple glorious? Or was it the fact that the eternal God of the universe had taken up residence within the Holy of Holies, so that to go into that presence was to risk one's life because it was so holy? Was it that, 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 uh, that glory cloud that, that entered the Holy of Holies that made it glory? Was it the fire that had descended from heaven to light the bronze Uh, uh, the bronze altar originally? Was it that fire of God's heavenly presence that made it glorious? Was it the Urim and Thummim that the high priest had that provided them answers when they sought God's will because God's presence was with them? Is that what brought the glory, is that what presented the glory of God in that temple? What we have is that what made Solomon's temple glorious was not the outward display of riches. What made it glory was that God's presence was truly there, and he had made his presence accessible. When they come back from Babylon, guess what doesn't come back? The fire that fell from heaven that, was, that had been kept lit for hundreds of years on the bronze altar, that fire was gone. The Ark of the Covenant, where you had the mercy seat, where the blood would be applied, guess what? The Ark was gone. The Urim and Thummim that the, the high priest had by which they could ask the Lord for his will and he would answer them, that was gone. All of the things that made that temple glorious because God was there, it was gone. 
Now, why is that important? Because Haggai tells the people, the ones who are weeping, because it doesn't appear to be glorious, he tells them a greater glory will come. But you have to wait for it. But what is the greater glory? Is it that this physical structure will once again have the display of all the gold and the precious jewels? And will it be the kind of place that people will talk about throughout the ancient Near East? Or will it be that God's presence will return? When you have Jesus in the Gospels, what you find is that the people of God had gone, had, had gone along with Herod the Great and had allowed him to build a new temple. And it was a temple that did far exceed the glory of the physical structure of Solomon's temple. It was twice as big. It, was, it had way more gold, way more precious jewels. But what you will also find, and Lord willing, if you turn, tune in, we'll be looking at this temple. It had all kind of extra things that God never told them should be part of the temple. And from the outward appearance of the temple, anyone who was alive at that time would have looked at Herod's temple and would have said, this is a Roman temple. And the expectation would have been, well, we, we should be able to go in, and in the courtyards we should see these, these stone um, statues representing the gods. We should be able to go into that, that innermost chamber and see representative, visual representatives of the gods. But instead, what did you find when you went into the Holy of Holies of that temple. You found nothing. The only thing that existed in the Holy of Holies, in the temple at the time of Jesus, the only thing that was in there was a rock. And that rock is where the high priest would come in and pour the blood on the Day of Atonement because they had no mercy seat. They would come in, they'd pour it on the rock. Guess what that rock was called? It was the foundation stone. What the leaders of Israel desired was the worldly, earthly, outward display of the glory and power and influence of the earthly temple that Herod had created and they preferred that foundation stone over the true foundation stone that God was providing to his people when his son would come and the glory of the eternal God would be veiled under the skin and flesh of humanity where Jesus was described as God's presence tabernacling with his people. They didn't like the superior glory of Jesus Christ because it didn't fit the passions of their earthly desires for earthly, temporal, finite power, influence, and display. How does that fit here with what Peter is telling us in being subject 
to human institutions. What he is telling us is that we can be subject to these human institutions because it is these human institutions that will not determine what happens in the world. As difficult as it is for, for us to hear, we don't have to have earthly power and glory and influence to be God's temple presence in this life. And there is absolutely nothing that the earthly authorities and powers can do that get in the way of us worshiping and witnessing faithfully to Jesus Christ in every single thing that we do, especially in the way that we relate to human authority and institutions. Notice here what he says. It's not simply be subject. It's not simply obey. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake. This is the will of God. The reason that you and I can be subject to these human authorities, regardless if they like us or if they don't, regardless if they promote our ideas or they don't, regardless of if they make it easy for us to live as Christians or they don't, is because whatever they are doing, it is finite. It is temporal. What did we see back in Psalm 146? Guess what will happen? They're going to die. And when they die, so also do their plans. But who never dies? Whose plans will never fail? Who is the one that has the power, that has the prerogative, that has the plan and the purpose? Sorry about all those Ps. That was not intended. But who has all of that? that we can trust in regardless of what things look like in our earthly existence. It is God who has invested these things in his son. When Jesus was raised from the dead, when he ascended to the right hand, and when he assumed that heavenly throne in which all authority in heaven and on earth was granted to him. Beloved, what this means is this. It is not always going to be easy for us to be devoted to him. And yet, our devotion to him is what empowers us to put up with whatever is going on around us so that we live with an express purpose that everything that we do, we recognize is an act of worship to him, and it is an act of witness for him. Remember what we said last week. Peter is telling us in every single thing that we do, worship, do it as worship, do it as witness, as if everyone is watching because they are. A couple months ago, I read online, I have no idea, if it's true. You know how the internet is, right? One of my favorite memes is the meme of Abraham Lincoln, you know, saying that everything that you read on the internet is true. 
or something to that effect. Whether the story is true or not, I don't know. I hope it is. But there was a Christian man that was on vacation with his family. This would have been back in May, I believe. Uh, it was when things were really ramping up with regards to COVID-19, as things were really ramping up with a lot of the confusion um, about you know, how should we live, how should we respond. Uh, that's when things started ramping up with all the discussions about pro-mask, anti-mask, all these different things. Well, this guy was on vacation with his family. They had decided they wanted to go to this little local donut shop to get donuts for breakfast. And what happened was he went into the donut shop, and upon entering and waiting in line, the owner then looked up at him and said, we require a mask for you to get donuts here. To which he responded with anger and frustration started explaining to this business owner uh, that she was being duped by false science and that there was nothing that demonstrated that wearing a mask did anything at all and that he was an American and he didn't have to wear a mask because he was free. Then he stormed out. But apparently after driving down the road a few miles, because he was a Christian, because he was a believer, the Holy Spirit started working on him. And after driving a few miles down the road, he became convicted that what, the way that he had responded was sinful, not because of what he believed with regards to whether or not a mask is actually helpful, but because of the way that he responded to that woman because what he had discovered about himself is that he was more ready to exercise his American citizenship and bear witness to that rather than with the mind of Jesus Christ humble himself and consider this other person as being greater than he and therefore serving her by putting on a mask or by just simply walking out quietly. Instead, what he realized is he took that moment to bear witness to what he believes about his American citizenship rather than to bear witness to his heavenly citizenship. And so what he did was he went back. He drove back, he went in, and he told the business owner, I'm a, I'm a Christian and what I just did was not Christian. He apologized, he asked for her forgiveness, and then he bought something like three times the amount of donuts he was going to buy. What are you bearing witness to right now? Because there are all kinds of temptations. And look, was it wrong for him to have a discussion about a mask? No, it wasn't wrong. It wasn't sinful. The way he went about it was. But what are we bearing witness to? Right now, in California, there's all kind of legal battles taking place between the state of California and churches with regards to them meeting. I told the session the other night, if 
we were having to deal with that, that I would by all means be promoting that we still meet. But what I wouldn't do is to go out of my way to put it in the face of the governing authorities that we were going to do so. You see, what's interesting here about Peter's words in being subject is that this is said by Peter, whom we know decided not to be subject to a human authority when they were asking him to do something contrary to what his king had called him to do. But what is interesting in the way that he went about it was not in making some kind of grandstand and trying to assert that he had rights that they were trying to encroach upon. What he said was that my king has called me to do something and I'm going to follow my king. As we right now continue to try to wrestle with things, you know, all things COVID-19, as we continue to wrestle with the tribalism, um, the polarization that exists within politics right now, beloved, let these words of Peter, which are not natural, let these words of Peter guide you and guide me in the way that we respond to these things as those who are free in Jesus Christ to use our freedom in Christ to be slaves of God and for his sake, as he calls us to here, to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. What I believe will help you and will help me do this is not by focusing on I've got to make sure I am honoring someone. I've got to make sure I'm submitting to this governing authority. Instead, do what we did in the first portion of this liturgy and just cultivate within yourself over and over and over again that Jesus Christ is ruling, he is reigning, and there is nothing that can thwart his purposes and plans. So within yourself that you are a devoted follower who is allied to him. And then seek to express that in everything that you do, in the attitudes in which you do them. Worship and witness as though everyone's watching, including your Savior and your King who is giving you the power to do this for him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we need your help in this time of controversy, in this time of polarized politics, in this time in which even here for us, we have watched governing authorities argue with one another, even sue one another. It is confusing. It is difficult to know what to do. And so help us, Lord, to, that as we move forward, that even if we don't understand exactly how to respond to all of the details of the earthly challenges and passions uh, with which we are being tempted, that instead, that we would so give ourselves as sojourners and aliens to our true citizenship 
in the heavenly places to our true King, Jesus our Christ. That in devoting ourselves to him over and over and over, the details, Lord, will work themselves out. Lord, we need your help. And Father, I pray that you would use us to be a presentation, to be an embodiment, both in word and deed, of the hope that comes from having Jesus Christ as king. And therefore, not look to the earthly leaders around us for our hope. Help us, Lord, to live with such hope that people will see us as strange and ask us what allows us to live with such comfort and confidence in the midst of such a troubling situation so that we can bear witness to our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. And Father, use this witness that we bear to bring others the hope of the gospel that they too would be called out of darkness and drawn into the eternal kingdom of light of your beloved Son. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.